Welcome to Blondie and the Brit, Writing, Publishing, and Beyond. You can find our show notes and more information about our podcast at blondieandbrit.com. That's B-L-O-N-D-I-E-A-N-D-B-R-I-T.com. Welcome to Blondie in the Brit podcast. I am Blondie, KJ Waters. And I'm Suzanne Cowman, I'm the Brit. And together we're Blondie in the Brit. Yay! Woohoo! I am the author of Stealing Time. And I'm the author of the Rejected Writers Book Club. This is a best of Blondie in the Brit episode. Today we welcome Terry Persson to our, our podcast. Terry is an award-winning Amazon best-selling author. He writes sci-fi, techno-thriller, mainstream, epic fantasy, paranormal suspense, mystery crime, poetry, wow, and non-fiction. And I met Terry a few years ago at the Whidbey Islands Writers' Conference. We were on a panel together. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Yay! So we should probably let the audience know that this is actually the second time that we've interviewed Terry. We interviewed him before and we had a great interview and then we had a technical problem and it crashed. So the only thing we can think is this is going to be an even better interview because the gods have decided that's the way it's going to be. So that's the plan, Terry. We're going to have a really great interview today. Oh, that's no pressure. I'm, I feel no pressure at all. <laughs> <laughs> you get out your clock now and start swiping your forehead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, you have a book coming out this week. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And there's also another one coming out soon, right? Yeah, one of them's through Bookshop and the other one's Indie. So. Well, do you want to give us a quick synopsis of both? Sure. The name is To Our Waking Souls. Okay. It's a quote from a, a John Dunn poem. Oh, neat. It's an occult romance, and it's a guy who goes back in time and finds out he's going through a divorce, and he goes to the mountains to to kind of think things over. Ends up in this factory where he goes back in time, and he recognizes that he and his wife were together in a past life, only in a very, a very bad situation. It was a kind of one of those three-way romances, and, and he was the bad guy. And so he's kind of... He realizes that somehow he's fixing that in this life. Oh, cool. And so wow, that's, that is such a cool premise. That should be a movie. I think so, too. This is one of my wife's favorite books, and it's been sitting around for a couple of years, and she keeps saying, when are you going to rewrite and work and, you know, finish that? So I finally did. Do you have a romance? We wanted to do it, KJ, because we were doing the February month, whether you had a romance, and I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I have another one. It's a, a romantic mystery called The Man by the Door. Oh, you have the best titles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You really oh, thank, do. Thank you, please. <laughs> you do, but like, it's like, just hearing all those titles, I'm like, ooh, what does that mean? I want to know more. You know, that's exactly what you want a reader to do, so they'll buy the thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, but what's funny to me is that the ones that I like the most probably sell the least, and the ones I, I think, yeah, you know, that was fun, but, you know, it's over. Thank goodness I'll write the next book. People seem to like that one. That's weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> as a writer, who knows what anybody wants? Yeah. What was that you like? Uh, are the ones that have creatively stretched you in some way? Or you've had a really great experience in that, and that's why you like it so much? Yeah, probably. That's probably exactly true, that somehow I, I could associate with that character. And then the other one is the Humanzy experiments. It's about creating a, a hybrid human chimpanzee. 
which they were experimenting in during the Second World War, and then they stopped experimenting. And so now with all the latest technology, it's cap capable of doing this, because we've done crosses between lions and tigers and, of course, horses and donkeys and, you know, all these kind of things. So the same thing. This guy is doing these crossbreeds to sell to a foreign country as warriors. Oh, neat. Wow. So it's, it's kind of a, a techie kind of piece. Um, I have a character named Tempest Eugene Nesbitt, who I call Ten. <laughs> and his first book was The Killing Machine. Oh, so this is a sequel. Yeah. I look at it as a episodic, I guess. Yeah. So there's, it's pulp fiction. It's a 12, probably maybe 50,000 words tops, 35 to 50,000 words, and not a lot of character development, but a lot of motion and a lot of technical information. Right. It's just fun to write. I like writing that stuff. Sounds a lot like Michael Crichton or like a Robin Cook type. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I like Michael Crichton. So. I do, too. He's got some great books. I think he's inspired a lot of what I've written, too. I mean, not maybe the technical aspects of it, but definitely that like adventure and very creative thinking of different ideas, science fiction, but not the weird fantasy stuff, more the science-y part of it. What's possible. Exactly. So. And I, that's what I like, too. Yeah. So that's the short story. Oh, neat. Or I liked the idea. The idea was more exciting than the writing of it or something. Right. Yeah, who knows? But, you know, it's, the thing is, is not everybody's going to like everything. So, so, Terry, so you write across multiple genres. How do you manage that? What is your strategy for sort of organizing that? And how does that come about in the way that you actually write? Yeah, I don't organize those pieces of my life. I mean, I organize, you know, layout and design and times I'm going to write. But when it comes to what I'm going to write, I tend to be a little freer because I want to feel the passion before I start working. And so, like most writers, I have very eclectic interests. And so, mm. ideas for stories can come from pretty much anywhere. You know, whether you're watching a rom-com, you know, with my wife, or I'm doing some technical work somewhere at a, at a college, or I'm listening to the news, or having a conversation with a friend, almost anywhere material can come in. And once that starts to germinate, then it eventually has characters that attach to the idea. And once I have characters attached to the idea and have a, a feel for how they, who they are, then I can start writing. And, wow. and because it's, like I said, it's so eclectic and I read it across all genres. So I'm pretty, you know, pretty familiar. So I think you have to also be open to that because, I mean, some writers aren't always open to that kind of absorbing. You have to be in that space where you're actually open to that, right, around you. Yeah, I think so. I think, well, people who write in one genre tend to read the genre they write in and they read a lot of those. And so naturally, most ideas they come up with, no matter where they get them, if it's a conversation with their barista, you know, it's... <laughs> They think, oh, okay, a bomb is underneath the, you know, <laughs> in yeah. the back of the store and somebody has to go get it. Or whatever it is, they, they fit it into their genre. But because right. I'm so open and so eclectic, I don't, I don't have that concern, I guess. I don't. But that filter system, yeah. right? You, you yeah, my brain doesn't filter that way. That's a good point. That, that's a yeah. good filter. Yeah. Well, it gives you it gives you a lot of freedom. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just I'm imagining it myself. It's like to hearing you say that allows your mind to just kind of pick up on anything. It's 
It's very freeing, I think. So talk us through the process. I mean, do you, you're out in Starbucks and something comes to you. Do you then look through all the genres you write and figure out where that would fit? How do you develop that once you have an idea? Yeah, no, I, I think it develops on its own. I usually have three or four things going on in my head at any one time, and they kind of reoccur and reoccur. And I, I always feel that, you know, the good ideas will come back and come back. And, and I think that's what happens. It's like a snowball, right? Because a kernel of an idea can just be, maybe it's, I see two people across, you know, in Starbucks and they're, they're having a, an argument or whatever. And I can look at this and I can say, okay, maybe that's a love story. That this is the beginning of the love story when they, they don't like each other and then eventually they'll learn to like each other or whatever the love story is going to be. And I think that. But then that those characters stay in my head for a while and I'm working or I'm doing something else and somebody says, gosh, you know, this internet stuff right now, what if, what if somebody hacked into this and, and created these subliminal messages through our internet and was controlling people through that. And they think, oh, maybe those characters weren't arguing. Maybe they were talking about this problem, right? <laughs> wow, that's incredible. I so, love that process. Yeah, you can start to let things flow any way they want. I was thinking about this while we were talking, and I wonder sometimes if it's not. I love poetry, and I started writing poetry. And poetry is that kind of thing where there's no real genre. You're writing about anything and everything, everything from, you know, your grandmother's teapot to the universe. And maybe that freedom of letting anything in all the time has really helped in my novel writing. That is an interesting theory. Yeah, because it, it, your brain is kind of trained to just pick up things and then let your intuition kind of take over and develop these things. So maybe that's a little habit you've created with the poetry. Interesting thought. Yeah. I think that's a skill, though, Terry. I think you've developed yeah. that skill. You know, because when I'm in Starbucks, I'm thinking about the other 10 things I've got to do while I'm out shopping, you know. And so it's just obviously a skill that you've just tuned into being able to allow that to, you know, permeate you as you're moving around your world, which is kind of cool. Well, you know, I meditate every day. And so I think... Learning how to separate my controlled life, if you will, the things I have to do and all that kind of stuff from your creative life, which is totally free, is a skill that everyone should be trying to create. So that when I walk out of my office, I'm not thinking, oh, I've got to do this, this, and this. I'm looking around and I'm experiencing the moment and smelling the air and listening to outside conversations and kind of letting everything in. Gosh, I think you should write the book on this. <laughs> well, it's, this is so cool. I love it. Well, it's brilliant. And there's a lot of brain theory that talks about, you know, how to develop your creativity. And that's exactly what it is. You're you're turning off that inner critic and you're turning off the have to do these things, you know, your list maker, and you're just allowing to experience things, living in the moment. So that's a really good thing for writers to kind of develop, I think. You know, you're absolutely right, and it sounds like you read a lot of the same stuff I do, because I've read probably 50 or 60 books on how the brain works and why it works that way and, and how to free it up, kind of like getting in the zone or whatever you want to call yeah, it, but yeah. being able to turn turn things off, those those critics and that planning and all those things, they don't help you with your creativity. No. That's kind of the opposite, right? Well, they help you get things done by forcing you to sit down and actually go write, but they don't help you come up with the ideas. So you get your writer's block when that guy comes back on and, he, you know, all your creativity is like, wait, shut up, dude, just shut up for a second. So you can write something, you know? Exactly. 
That's exactly it. Yeah, sounds really interesting. I love that you've got this fine-tuned machine, and it explains a lot of your, you know, the vast variety of books that you've written. I think that, and my daughter and I talk about this once in a while, Nicole, and we're both very prolific, and I think that it allows that because your creativity doesn't stop you. You know, you don't get into a spot and say, man, I can't write that now because I'm working on this. Or you don't have any of those blocks, yeah. like you said. Yeah, that's a really healthy writer's life, too. So meditation is where you start with this, and then you've read a lot of the books to kind of help you develop that skill. So that's it. I love that. That's really yeah. interesting. I think that's really valuable for us to, to keep in mind as creatives. It's really great. So with so many books that you do have, how do you kind of keep on top of marketing them all? Because obviously you're marketing to very different people with different genres. Yeah, and this is the bane of every publisher out there, I think. And this is why sometimes indie publishing is is healthy for us because we can publish with a publisher certain types of books that they do well, and then we can indie publish other things. Or, like with me, I work with Booktrope, and there are a good publisher, they have good editors and proofreaders and cover designers and all the things a regular traditional publisher has, but they don't block what I write and how I write it. They understand and they remind me all the time that, you know, you're a book manager or marketer and you are going to have trouble because you're all over the place, but that's your choice. And so, to be honest, you know, I only put out maybe two books a year and sometimes three, but you end up Focusing on the one you just put out, so you have the spike that you get from that. And then the tail end, even if you're with a major publisher, they stop marketing you. And so you just have to maintain a a certain amount of visibility for that book. So it's not about pushing it. Marketing, to me, sounds very pushy. But you push it, you do the marketing for that first peak. And when it falls off, then you maintain visibility for it. And you can do that in three or four different genres fairly easily. And at what sort of ways do you do that? So what sort of things do you choose to use? What vehicles? Yeah, marketing's a complex thing, and that's what I do for a living. So for companies, it depends on the book, of course. But, you know, online is important. So I try to stay visible on Facebook and Twitter, at least so that people know I'm still there. So when I do have a new book out, I can announce it without feeling guilty. And then magazines, newspapers, a lot of times they say these things don't work, but I'm a firm believer that visibility is the key. So if I can be visible anywhere, we were talking about this a little earlier, KJ and I, you just say yes. If somebody wants to interview you, you say yes. If you already know what your books are about and if something crops up in in the news, you can always attach to that. So I have one called the NSA Files. So when all the NSA stuff was going on, I could say, geez, I've written about the NSA and some of the things that go on, even though it's fiction. But it gives you that connection with those things, and then you can be found in those ways. Do you then hashtag and do that kind of of marketing? Yeah. Yeah, that kind of marketing. And like I said, newspapers and magazines, right now we're, we're in a really interesting time period when there are so many ways to get information and so few people to put it out, if you will. So every magazine, you have to remember, every magazine that's on the shelf, so you go to Barnes & Noble and there's, what, 300 magazines? Bonds, yeah. Right, at least. All those magazines, plus all the online magazines, plus all the trade journals and and specific magazines in areas that 
I haven't even thought of. <laughs> they also need material month after month after mm -hmm. month, and not just one story. They need two or three articles. They need five or six departmental pieces. They need editorial items. They need comments. They need everything. And right now, as writers, we have the material. I mean, we really know what to do. We know how to get that information out there and to be heard. That is a yeah, great that's point. That's really, really thought-provoking. Yeah. I think everything you write, this is the key for me for marketing, is that everything I write is part of my marketing tool. So if I do a short story and get it published, at the end of the short story it says, geez, Terry has 20 novels out there or whatever it is, and people can look me up. If I get a poem published, they can look me up. I've had poems published and people bought sci-fi novels because they read a poem or two. Ah, it's just uh, your foot in the door to, yeah, their reading life. Yeah. Here's the cool thing is my publisher's always saying, well, where are your readers? Well, readers are everywhere, yeah. and I don't know where they are. I can't say, oh, my specific reader is in one place because I write cross-genre. Yeah. Even if I did write in one genre, all the readers aren't online talking about these books. They're not, you know, they're not in specific places easily. So you reach them everywhere. I'll sell a science fiction novel to a woman whose husband likes science fiction. Well, how would I ever get that done if I didn't reach that woman in a magazine or a newspaper or on a website? that he's not reading. Yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it's just visible. Stay visible. Write as much as you can. Get it out. Get published. And just keep going. That's good. Yeah. You know, all this time that we, Suzanne and I, were just talking about this beforehand, too. All the time we spent on social media, she was saying, you know, I really need to get more interactive on Twitter and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but at the expense of what? Writing your next book? So what you're saying, it fits that perfectly. You're absolutely right. And that's the key right there. Because if you spend all your time writing little quips. It's kind of like small talk, right? Yeah. We're at a big party. The party is the internet and the magazines on the bookshelves and the people you meet in the grocery store. It's a big party. The whole world is a party. <laughs> and we're at the party and we have a choice whether or not we're doing small talk with 30 people who don't know who we are and don't really care because just small talk. Oh, yeah, somebody else asking about the weather. Or do we talk to certain people through our short stories, our poems, our novels, or deeper conversations on websites that have those deeper conversations and reach the people who are potential buyers. Yeah. I think we should call this podcast The Whole World is a Party because that sounds like Yeah, fun. I love it. You know, <laughs> when you think about it like that, that's such a great analogy of how to approach marketing because I think people get very overwhelmed by it. I do too. And, and you know, I can, I can tell you just from experience on other people I talk with that if I do too much small talk on the social media places, they'll eventually start to see me as a person who's got a lot of small talk and won't read all this stuff anyway. What do we do on Twitter especially? When I go to Twitter, there are certain people who are, I know, they're writers, but most of the time they're talking about their cat or their dog or, or whatever else it right. is, which is okay. They tell you to do a certain amount of that. But if it's similar kind of content because they're just trying to be there like we all are, then you start to skip it. Yeah. Right. Skip it. It's like you'll never catch it. Though. It's background noise, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's a really good point. That's a, a whole different way of looking at marketing than, I mean, a lot of people we talk to is, the, you know, get out there. The more you put out, or some people just post their book, their book, their book, you know. Uh, yeah. But what you're saying is to have deeper, meaningful conversations and fewer of them, which is brilliant. I think that really fits into this 
you know, people are getting, they've been on social media for so long that a lot of that small talk really isn't as interesting as it ever used to be. And it wasn't that interesting to start with, but to have like what you're saying, just go for bigger chunks, which is read my story, read my book, read, you know, read my poetry. I think that, and you know, we all know the term giving back. So if I can help somebody, if somebody's online and they say, geez, I'm working on this and I need something and I can help, then I try to help. Yeah. So that's part of it, too. Yeah. At a certain point, I mean, I've been doing this a long, long time, and I love writing, and I study it, and I'm conscious. So when somebody says, geez, I've been trying to figure out whether what point of view to, to write in, can anybody help me? I can at least have that conversation and, and walk them through yeah. making their own decision. You know, I can't make the decision for them, but I think our job is to facilitate anyway. Yeah. So the only thing you can ever help is to facilitate their learning process. Right. And you chime in on things that you know, and you know writing. So that was a, a perfect way to, to help somebody with written all these different books. Here's what worked for me. Here's what didn't. Here's the problems if you go third person, et cetera. So. Yeah. Genuine. That's just, yeah. you, you know, when you do that in a genuine way, then people are more open to you as well. Right. Exactly. I, and I think that's a good thing. And you know what? That's how you find people who become, who like your material and become loyal. And I'm perfectly okay with people not liking what I write. And I, we all should be that way. So if you read a book, and even if you're my close friend, and you don't like the way I write, and you don't like material, it's not going to change the fact that we're good friends, because that's my book. And the book has to live on its own, not with me holding its hand its whole life. And so in that way, they can recommend or not recommend your book, but you start to find your own audience. Yeah. And I think a lot of times that's the key. I, I only want my audience anyway. I don't want somebody else's. Well, exactly. We can share. There's certainly people that read a whole lot of different things. So, yeah. yeah but I, mean, I see that, what you're saying. And the key is they say not to please everybody because you're yeah. never going to please everybody. That's the whole point. Well, so, so, actually, I want to, we wanted to ask you a question. We had Susan on the show and she talked about the book, How Don't Show. So, if you could just talk a little bit about what that's about and why that's kind of that's kind of the opposite of what we hear out there about you know show don't tell yeah absolutely i do study a lot and i go to a lot of conferences and of course i have my masters like everybody else out there and, and all that and one of the things that always bothered me was all the things that you go to these conferences and places and beginning writers are listening to people who supposedly know what they're doing including agents and editors and all this and they have these rules no adverbs and show, don't tell, and all this. When you read, that's not what you're reading. You know, every book off the shelf, I can almost pick any book off my bookshelf, and I can show you where they're telling and not showing, and that where they're using adverbs well. And so what we did, I created a course with my daughter, Nicole, first on breaking the rules of fiction. And then Susan and I started talking about it, and she had additional rules. And so we started to talk and do classes on breaking these rules, and they were always packed. So eventually we thought, you know what? We have examples. We know the class. Let's put something together. So the three of us got together and put the book out just as a beginning, more or less, to show new writers that, look, if you learn how to write, you can break every rule you want, right? Just like everybody mm -hmm. else knows. Painters know this. Sculptors know it. Learn what works and then change that in order to push it forward. And so we have a lot of examples in the book, which is important. Real books of across the line from literature to, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, that kind of stuff. So could you kind of give us a little sort of idea of how you would do that in a, in a story, just so that people understand what that means? 
Do you mean tell not show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you tell not show? Yeah, so, you know, let's do this. Um, so, somebody says, typically what will happen is they'll, they'll say, he fell in love with her the moment he saw her. That's telling. Right. And so they'll say, well, let, they'll show me this. And so you start to write and you say, you know, when Bob stepped into the room, the first thing we noticed across the hall, we're still telling, right? The woman turned to face him. And his heart began to beat faster and his hands started to get sweaty and he felt a little weak in the knees and went over and sat down. And so, so now we've got his heart beating and his sweating and he's sitting down and his knees are weak and all those things are showing. Now we're showing things. So we didn't just say he looked across the room and fell in love. We're showing you that he's having a reaction. So that's what they like. The trouble is, is that if I do that, Every time he looks at her to show how much he loves her, then we're going to get pretty boring after a while. <laughs> you know, we're three quarters of the way through the book and the guy can't stand up half the time. He goes to his cardiology because his heart keeps bounding. <laughs> exactly. That's what this man to a doctor. Or the other problem we have is that we take this too seriously. I'm going to go to the park with my dog. And so what we do is instead of saying, oh, honey, I'm heading to the park with my dog and I'm having you at the park, we end up saying he took the 12 steps to the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Turned it, right? Pushed yeah. the door open and stepped onto the porch. It's like, wow. Okay. Yeah, you're showing me an awful lot, but I don't care. Right. And you're <laughs> so skip the ball. Well, and you're boring the reader at that point. You've got to pick where to show that has the most impact. So there's times you need to tell. Exactly. Exactly. And every book you read, you can pick up and you can find out where they're telling and where they're showing. And so everybody does it. So there's no doubt in my mind that when we explain these things, we mean, we mean certain times you have to show me what's going on. Not all the time. And once you've established a certain emotion or response or situation, you can then repeat that without showing as much. Maybe you cut it down to from a paragraph or two that showed me what was happening to two lines because it gets me right back into that situation. And I'm sure that would be helpful for people because we do hear all these rules of that there. And, you know, then you start panicking about how you're writing. So it's great that you're showing that. You, that In fact, the whole interview is about just being free in your creative process and not being bound by things, which is great. Right. Well, of course, what I tell everybody is to don't think about any rules or spelling or anything else or don't hear anybody, don't talk to anybody. Just get that first draft done. And that's why they call them shitty first drafts because <laughs> right. you just – Get it out, whatever way it has to, any language, anything. When you find yourself, when you find that critic stepping in and saying, geez, my mom won't like this, <laughs> you might as well stop writing at that point and wait until you open up again. Right. Because it really has nothing to do with anybody, not even you. I mean, there are times when I've written things where I know certain people after I'm done writing them. I know certain people are not going to like this, but you have to write it anyway. Yeah. Right. Because you're writing with the passion and the the f- true feelings of, of what's going on for your story. As soon as you shut that off, it turns into boring, a little more mundane story. Exactly. And it won't reach as deeply into the reader either. Yeah. Which is a great point. And I don't doubt that we all have a something that comes through our writing. But if I'm writing about a, 
a teenage girl who's falling in love, it's going to have a different voice and sound in the book, hopefully, than the truck driver, you know, who's a serial killer. Right? <laughs> it's better. <laughs> it's better. <laughs> so if I've got the same voice, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. That's a weird story. <laughs> Both ways. The serial killer is a little lovesick girl. And That's a good title, by the way. You know that. <laughs> serial killer and the lovesick girl. Hey, Terry, we're going to air this in the month of love in February. And we're just curious how you tackle the romantic elements of your novels. Is there a certain strategy that you use? Is it based on real life? How do you do that? So going back to what I say about being free, I write it first. And then when you're doing your rewrites, you can start to check that out and look at things a little more detailed. Partly, it's like any other thing in a relationship to me. So if I have two characters and they have a platonic relationship, it's a platonic relationship in which that, you know, there's not a lot of innuendos, there's not a lot of rude comments, there's not a lot of over-touching, it's, it's all very pertinent to whatever that relationship is. If it's a deeper relationship, then you start to look at, if it's a marriage, how long have they been married and how has their intimacy changed? Are they talking about having kids? Have they already had kids? If one character is highly sexual, you've got to use a lot of sex in the story, mm-hmm. or at least through that character dependent on what the other characters' reactions and interests are. So there's always that balance of saying who is the real character, what's important to them. So as we all know, I mean, we've all been around and dated and everything. There are people who the most important thing in their relationship is their friendship. Uh, Other people, the most important thing is that they share likes and dislikes, uh, you know, like they do the same kind of job. Other ones, it's about sex. It's about, you know what, if the sex isn't good, then the the rest of the relationship suffers. You know, you read about or hear about the old times when it was all about the way a man's heart is through his stomach, you know? (laughs) So there are those relationships out there, though, where that's what the relationship is. You know, I, I, I fell in love with her because she she cooked like my grandmother, and I just remember the smells in the kitchen. And, and so every time we get together, I can... It just brings me back to my childhood and and my love of life. And and so that character is totally different than a character who's fearful in a relationship, Mm. you know, and afraid to show themselves. So I know that doesn't answer the question easily, but you have to go through that character and find it. No, I think it does answer the question really well. I mean, you know, I had an interesting experience with an editor when, you know, my couple in my book had been married a long time. And she would constantly ask me questions. Why is he not asking her this? And why is she not doing that? And it's like, because it's, she was a young editor. And so she didn't know that when you've been married 20 years, you don't have to ask those questions anymore. You know, and it was really interesting to me that because she was young, she just didn't see that older, when you're older, you, it, your relationship is different, you know. Oh, I love that. You're absolutely, that is so cool. Because the older you get, the more you don't have to talk about certain things. Because those things have been figured out years ago. Or forgotten. <laughs> exactly. It's true. Yeah. yeah. I agree. That brings up a great point that I, I struggle with all the time, and that's the larger publishers in New York, often when we have agents or, or when we have editors come to conferences, they're usually young editors, 
And do they really understand the writing or the, you know, the way older people think? Do they really get it well enough in order to edit somebody who's been around 20, 30, 40 years writing? Right. Right. That makes sense. Well, they don't, obviously. <laughs> with it, you know, so it was very, it was very interesting to me. I'd never even thought about that. That you know, that somebody who's young has such a different expectation in love than someone who's older who's already established a relationship and doesn't have to ask those things anymore. No. Well, it's true. And Terry, I really like your advice on that because instead of writing a romance, you're talking about you're writing, you get really into the character and you feel what that character is feeling. And then you, you know, the, you can't just have this love affair. It has to be from that character's viewpoint. What exactly is their motivation? So I think that's perfect advice for, for just not even romance, but any type of situation they're going through is to get into the character's head. And that's maybe why you're so successful at these different genres is that you really feel feel what the character's feeling and can turn that into something the readers, you know, can relate to. Yeah, I hope so. You've heard of C.C. Humphreys? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris is, is an actor, and I think that that's really what helped him write so well. His characters come alive on the page because he's an actor and he knows how to get into that character. And I think that uh-huh. would do most writers good is to take some classes on acting and how to enter those characters differently. This is what's cool about writing. This is the awesome, wonderful, neatest thing about writing and writers, is that everything we do adds to our work. I recommend often that people learn to write poetry because the image is so important, and being able to compare down your writing to a, you know, a, a small piece is difficult to do, or flash fiction. If you take acting classes, it, it helps you learn how to enter into your your characters. I've taken classes on painting and jewelry making and mm-hmm. everything because it makes you look at things differently. Painting really helped me see, I guess, the, the contrasts and the darkness, if you will, of nature. We don't typically, when we look at the green tree, we don't typically recognize that a lot of that tree, a lot of that space is black, mm. and, and a lot of it is sky. So it's almost transparent. The tree itself is so transparent, but because we focused on the tree, we're seeing green and, and you know, the trunk of the tree and, and all this kind of stuff, but we miss the shadow and the light and the way it dances. Mm. Unless we've taken some painting classes or understand art that well. And so anything we do as writers applies to our writing. Right. When you first said that, I thought you meant, you know, go live your life and do fun things. You have things to put in the story, but you're talking at like an artistic view and from various different levels of like the painting or the feeling as an actor and various other things. So that's, that's great advice. Yeah. Absolutely. If they go to your sets, like Terry, I can't see there would be anything there that they would. I mean, you like you have such a multi-genre. It's like <laughs> anybody can go to your site and pick up a book. Seriously, my grandmother could go there and get a book. <laughs> All right, send your grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. Like, are you secretly challenging yourself to write every type of book there is? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Don't say that now. See, now. Uh, uh, see what I've done? See what I did there? Oh, no. <laughs> I want to see the the serial killer teen romance book. That's the <laughs> inspiring. You have a great name for it too. What? The, the little girl by the door. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that does sound good, actually. 
That sounds creepy, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> Ew. Because I'm not with a theater, it doesn't sound creepy. Yeah, oh yeah, that sounds well that sounds like Dexter. I was definitely my favorite show. Well, cool. Do you think we're ready for the lightning round? I feel like I could interview you the entire day, but I also am the I editor. Know, me too. I need to <laughs> I'm the editor, so I'm like, we better stop before my head explodes because I gotta have to turn this into a 36 minute podcast. <laughs> Suzanne, you want to do the lightning round? Is, am I doing the lightning round? Well, I think yeah. you should. Yes, I I volunteer you. <laughs> It says KJ to do the lightning round, but that's fine. That's I'm fine. breaking the rules. I've learned from Terry. Okay, that's fine. I'm totally good with that. Because it's not that hard, so. No. Okay, you ready, Terry? Yes. You've already done this one, so this should be easy. <laughs> okay, tea or coffee? Coffee. For writing, silence or music? Silence. What did you want to be growing up? A writer. Yeah, I love that you got to be what you wanted to be. Yeah. Is there a book you could read every year? Ray Bradbury's The Zen and the Art of Writing. Oh, wow. Oh, did you say that last time? I think you did. I need to read that now. Okay. Oh, I've done it twice. That's good. Yeah. That is good. I had a feeling you said the same one before. Yeah, I was trying to remember when it said. Yeah. Dog or cat? Cat. Have you got a cat? Yes. Oh, what's his name? We just want to know. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the one that we have living here now is Jack. We have one at the barn that just showed up, and we have been feeding. I call him Smokey, but everybody calls him something different. A <laughs> <laughs> cat with my, no name. That's funny. My daughter has two cats that used to live with us, but she took with her, and that was Violet and Emmy. Oh, that's a nice name. What author would you like to have dinner with, dead or alive? Robert Penn Warren. Oh, see, what does he write? I don't know who that is. Oh, yeah, he's written a lot of, he's an older, older writer. He's won two Pulitzers in poetry and one Pulitzer in fiction. He's the only person who's ever won Pulitzer Prizes in both fiction and poetry. And oh, that's I'm incredible. Just talk to him. Wow. Is that because you, you do want to talk about his process or just his books are so incredible that you'd want to talk about those? Oh, yeah, just, he's just so, it's just so incredible all the things he's written and how he writes and how well he writes and it's a, Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful writer. Yeah. Ooh, I have to look into that then. That's good. Okay, favorite vacation spot? Oh, I don't go on vacation very often. So, I like to hike, so anywhere I can hike. Oh, favorite book genre to read? (laughs) 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 I think I know the answer. Uh, Literature, actually. I I would rather read a book of, you know, a literary book than anything else. Do you write best in the morning or at night? Morning. Do you have a particular time that you write? Usually between 5 and 7 somehow. Wow, okay, cool. That's about my schedule. A.M. Oh, you guys are And I get a early tip. If money was no object, where would you live? Right where I am. Yeah, you said that last time, too. I yeah. remember that. He's like, happy. Well, that's the same way. You that's chose well. Okay, yeah, I'm in Port Townsend. It's beautiful here. Yeah, you're just across the water from me. Okay, favorite comfort food? Favorite comfort food. Besides coffee... <laughs> oh, peanut. <laughs> oh, I like ice cream. Oh yay! Another what flavor? Peanut butter. Ooh, this peanut butter ice cream. I didn't even know that. Oh, wow. it's so good. <laughs> Do you have a nickname? No. Do you want one? <laughs> yeah, Suzanne. We, that, sure. Every person that says no, I feel so inclined to give them one. I'd have to know you better. <laughs> oh, we give them to them. They just don't know about them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's usually when they're walking away. Oh, no. As soon as you press goodbye, then... No, no, no. My sister-in-law calls me Terrence. And my name is Terry, not Terrence. It's, oh. you know, but she calls me Terrence. Is that annoying? <laughs> no, it's just funny. That's cute. <laughs> okay. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Well, actually, oh, I like beach, too. But living in poor towns that I have it all, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. We're Lucky. good. We're happy. Lucky. Yeah. That's it. We're done. Wow. Well, look, this is always fun. I love you guys. This oh, is so great. No, you were, this was so, as much as, it was a different interview, but there was so much great stuff in it. Seriously, I'm yeah. really excited to hear this. Yeah, this oh, is, good. turned out great. Terry, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for your double time, since I feel like we've invested. <laughs> <laughs> for having a one-hour podcast interview, we've actually done two hours of it, so really appreciate yeah. your time. All right, appreciate thank it. That's true. Yeah. Please join us next week for our Funniest Podcast Award winner, J.D. Lex. You can find our show notes and more information about our podcast at blondieandbrit.com. That's B-L-O-N-D-I-E-A-N-D-B-R-I-T.com. 